And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. You know, over the years in my own involvement in different uh, discipleship groups, I've often asked an icebreaker type of question. Um, whether it's a group of Christians or non-Christians, I have uh, said, if you could ask Jesus to teach you something or to do something for you, what would it be? To maybe answer a question for you, what would it be? And so sometimes the questions asked would be, you know, why is there evil in the world? Or, you know, along those types of lines, you know, why do bad things happen to good people? People want to know those questions. Or they, they want to be taught, you know, how do I get victory over over sin? How can I have more power, the Holy Spirit's power in my life? Uh, how can I be more effective in evangelism? And how, or how can I lead someone to Christ like my brother or my, my mother or a family member? Or, or would you bring someone to Christ that I particularly am praying for? Do these types of questions come out. It's interesting that in the Bible, in, when you see Jesus interacting with the apostles, that there's only one time where they ask Jesus to teach them to do something. And that occasion is in, found in the book of Luke, where they ask Jesus to teach them how to pray. And in the book of Luke, the answer is the Lord's Prayer. Now, Matthew uh, doesn't have that aspect of it where the, the disciples ask to be taught, but this is the context of the Lord's Prayer where they ask him to teach. It's interesting. The only thing they ever ask Jesus that's on record to teach them to do is to teach them to pray. It's difficult to overestimate the importance of the Lord's Prayer. If you look at it from a historical perspective, you go all the way back to the earliest days of the church, the great leaders of the church, you find all of them preaching sermon series like I'm doing here this over the next several weeks or writing books. You go to Origen and St. Augustine and Tertullian and all of these, the John Chrysostom and all of these great men of the early church, they all address and talk extensively about the Lord's Supper. From a historical perspective, you can't overestimate the importance of it, or of the Lord's Prayer, not the Lord's Supper, excuse me, I see the things down here. Um, textually, in, if you look at the context of the Sermon on the Mount, we've pointed out that the Sermon on the Mount is the greatest sermon ever preached. Well, it's interesting that at the midpoint of the greatest sermon ever preached is the Lord's Prayer. And the central clause in the Lord's Prayer, which is at the center of the greatest sermon, is that little phrase, on earth as it is in heaven, which reinforces the theme of the entire Sermon on the Mount, that kingdom focus that Jesus is bringing to us, that the kingdom is at hand, and it reinforces the importance of prayer and bringing about God's kingdom here on earth. 
You know, through the years, as I have interacted with individuals who are perhaps uh, not in the Reformed heritage like we are as a Presbyterian church, one of the questions that I have been asked or one of the accusations that has been made is that we don't really get prayer as Presbyterians. That why do we even bother praying? Because after all, we believe in God's absolute sovereignty over everything, which means that we like that naughty word, predestination, right? Um, You know, it's in the Bible, and we happen to think it's there for a reason, Um, and we don't run from it. But if you believe in predestination, why would you even bother praying? Because it's all, I mean, after all, you know, and so I've dealt with this with people uh, who are not within the Reformed uh, heritage And just so you know, just kind of maybe as a teaser, in the weeks ahead, I hope to disabuse the false understanding of those who think that just because you believe in God's sovereignty, that prayer is an empty, useless exercise. Far from it. When you understand how God is in control of everything, prayer becomes a very powerful weapon in our spiritual warfare. But... Uh, This week, we begin a series of messages called Kingdom Prayer. And in the weeks ahead, we're going to look at each of the six petitions that make up the Lord's Prayer. The petitions like, you know, give us this day our daily bread, and, you know, thy kingdom come, uh, your will be done. These are all the petitions of the Lord's Prayer. And we're going to unpack them and see what do they mean for our lives as individuals? What do they mean for our church? How are they to affect us in our prayer life. But this morning, I want us to begin this series by going to the passage, to the text, the opening words, and making a couple of general observations from this passage to help us understand the Lord's Prayer and its purpose a little bit more, and then dig into how we are to open in prayer, because how we open in prayer is actually very important. So let's start with the very first, very general observation, and we find it in verse 5 and verses 7 and 8, and it's simply this. Jesus tells us there is a wrong way to pray. There's a wrong way to pray. If you've ever been told, you know, it doesn't matter how you pray, it doesn't matter what you say, when you say it, how you say it, etc., just pray, that is bad advice. That's bad counsel. Jesus tells us there's a wrong way to pray. If you go back to verse 5, for example, in Matthew chapter 6, we touched on this a couple of weeks ago. He says, when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. In other words, there's a wrong way to pray. You can pray like a hypocrite. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. A couple of weeks ago, I pointed out to you that a hypocrite is a person who's playing a part for one's own interests, not because it's a truthful reflection of reality, of who they are. The hypocrites would time their prayer life in public. They would make their way to the public square or to a a cross section in the city so that when the The horns at the temple in Jerusalem would blow and call the people to pray. They could be seen publicly by the most, the greatest number of people. 
And they would pray loudly and ostentatiously because their concern was what other people thought about them and their prayer life. Their motive in prayer and their fervency and the ornateness of their prayers, the motive behind that was to be seen as spiritual. Their motive was wrong. Therefore, their prayers were wrong. You can pray wrongly. You can pray like a hypocrite. And then in the verses that Ben just read for us in our text this morning, in verse 7, you can pray like a Gentile. That's another wrong way to pray. He says, when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. What's he getting at here? You see, in the ancient world, in the ancient pagan religions, even in false religions today, there is a common characteristic. You see a great illustration of it in the Old Testament with Elijah. In 1 Kings chapter 18, uh, there is a story given to us where Elijah is standing in opposition to the false prophets, the prophets of the false god Baal. King Ahab, the, uh, the king of Israel, the northern kingdom, had led the nation astray. They were worshiping this false god, Baal, who was the chief entity, the chief false god of the ancient Middle Eastern world. And so there was a showdown on Mount Carmel. Which God is actually the real God? And on one side, you had all of these scores of false prophets, and on the other was the single prophet of God, Elijah. And so they, they created a test. They built an altar, and they said, the real God, the true God, the powerful God, will send fire from heaven and consume the altar. And so Ahab said, I guess maybe they flipped the coin like a football game. I don't know. But, you know, I'll play defense. You go first. And, and so the, the, the prophets of Baal went first. And the Bible says they began to pray early in the morning. Nothing happened. They prayed longer and longer and louder and harder and more fervently. And, of course, Elijah, being the gentleman he was, he began to smack-talk him and trash-talk him. And he said, pray louder. Maybe he's sleeping. Maybe he can't hear you. You know, wake him up. And they did. Because, you see, this was part of the religious practice in the pagan religion. And false religions, you see, the fervency, the length of your prayer, and the emotional fervor of your prayer is part of your worship and of your work. It earns you the right to be heard by your God. You understand what you're getting at there? In other words, the harder I pray, God is looking and saying, okay, now I'll listen and I'll hear his prayer. We, we manipulate God based upon how we do in our prayer life. You see, there's a wrong way to pray. If you see it as a way to earn God's reaction, to earn God's favor, or to, to manipulate God to give you what you're looking for, no, wrong way to pray. You can have wrong motives. You can have wrong approaches and methods to God. There is a wrong way to pray. Don't miss that observation that Jesus gives us. 
And then there's a second general observation. It's in verse 9. Pray then like this. There is a right way to pray. There's a wrong way to pray. There is a right way to pray. Pray then like. That is an important word. Underline it. Draw a box around it. Do something with it. That word like means in this manner. Pray in this manner. In other words, these verses that we're going to be studying for the next several weeks is very much a model prayer for us. Um, it is not necessarily given to us as something that we must memorize and that we pray it, attach it to a bead on our wrist, and that by praying it verbatim, we now have, you know, somehow mystically, magically opened up the gates of heaven and obligated God to listen to us. That's what the Gentiles do, okay? That's not the purpose of this prayer. We got to understand that when you compare the Luke passage to the Matthew passage, they're different. The, the prayer in the book of Luke is shorter than the prayer in the book of Matthew. Why is this? Is there contradiction in the Bible? No, we, we got to realize that Jesus was an itinerant preacher. And he taught and he preached and he gave lessons and sermons at multiple locations. And like any preacher, even like today, me, my message today is going to be different than last night. Even within 24 hours, it changes depending upon the needs of the audience and as the Spirit leads. Jesus would maybe teach less in one location, more in another location. The book of Matthew gives us the complete teaching that Jesus gave on what we would say is the model prayer. Now, it's not wrong for us to pray it verbatim, especially when we come together corporately as God's people. He uses the word our in the prayer, and so there is this sense of corporateness to this prayer. But what I really want you to understand is it's not given to us primarily as just, you know, 57 words or however many words in the Greek, I think it's 57 words, for us to memorize as one of many different prayers. I was at a basketball game this week, and in the middle of the prayer, you know, they're referring to the prayer of St. Francis of Assisi. This is not what the Lord's Prayer is like, like another prayer, like St. Francis of Assisi's prayer. It's a model prayer. It's a framework for our prayer life. If you want to maybe understand this, I would commend to you a little book that I read many years ago, and I return to on a regular basis. It was written by Martin Luther in 1535, and it's called A Simple Way to Pray for my good friend, Peter the Barber, okay? Uh, the story behind this, it's, it's, it's in the book itself. Peter, actually Peter the Master Barber. Apparently he had achieved master status. Peter was a master barber, cut Martin Luther's hair for 18, 20 years. He was well-loved, well-liked. He cut many of the dignitaries' hair. And, uh, and Peter asked Martin Luther, who was renowned for his prayer life. Martin Luther, for example, said, I am so busy today. I have so much to do today. I must begin by praying for three hours. Can you imagine that? 
But he was known, Martin Luther was known for spending at least four hours a day in prayer. With all that he had going on, he spent hours in prayer every day. We'll be talking more and more about the importance of prayer as it relates to God's kingdom work. Prayer defined Martin Luther. And so this is known about him, and Peter says, how can I, as a common man, I'm a barber, pray, I'm I'm not you. And so Martin Luther wrote this little book, A Simple Way to Pray. And in it, he says, the primary way that I pray and I begin is I use the Lord's Prayer. He says, I take each of the petitions, and and he lays out, he'll say, you know, uh, thy kingdom come. And then he gave an example, like a paragraph, of how he would pray, expand on thy kingdom come, and your will be done, and give us our daily bread. And, And he laid out examples and kind of tutoring him how to use the Lord's Prayer as a framework. And he goes on and he says, now listen, don't use my little examples as your prayers. You have to make this your own and, and, and craft it for yourself. He said, but this is what I do. And, and don't forget the amen. He talked extensively about how, hard, how important the amen is, which we kind of just throw in at the end. But Martin Luther was a firm believer on the importance of the amen. And he talked about the importance of using the Psalms in your prayer life and, and different things. But at one point, this is what he said about using the Lord's Prayer and the different petitions of it. He said, I do not bind myself to such words or syllables. In other words, I I don't bind myself to the exact wording of the Lord's Prayer, but I say my prayers in one fashion today and another tomorrow, depending upon my mood and feeling. I stay, however, as nearly as I can with the same general thoughts and ideas. It may happen occasionally that I may get lost among so many ideas in one petition that I forego the other six. If such an abundance of good thoughts comes to us, we ought to disregard the other petitions. Make room for such thoughts. Listen in silence and under no circumstances obstruct them. The Holy Spirit himself preaches here. And one word of his sermon is far better than a thousand of our prayers. Many times I have learned more from one prayer than I might have learned from much reading and speculation. What's his point? That the Lord's prayer very much becomes a jumping off point, a framework that guided his entire prayer life. In fact, if you think about what it accomplishes, that it gives us some insight. And I would suggest it accomplishes several things for us. The first thing is, is that it fences in a wandering mind. Have you ever found yourself praying and all of a sudden in the middle of your prayer time, you're thinking about your to-do list or you're thinking about how the fact that, you know, the Eagles just won the Super Bowl or, you know, something, your, your mind wanders. Have you ever done that? Okay. Has your mind ever wandered in your prayer life? Hello, anybody out there? Okay. I, okay. Thank you. Uh, for a minute there, I thought I was the only one that happened to I guess y'all are all just so spiritual, right? Right. Our, our minds wander. And the Lord's prayer helps fence in that natural tendency of our minds to wander so that we can stay on task. Another thing it does for us is it frees us from anxiety. Have you ever worried that, you know, I pray and is, is my prayer going to be even answered? 
Is God going to listen to my prayer? Will he answer my prayer? Well, Jesus tells us in this passage that this is the kind of prayer that the Father listens to, that he likes to hear, and that this is the kind of prayer that God answers. So when we pray along this manner, we can have confidence that God is going to hear us, that he's gonna answer us. So we don't have to be anxious and worry whether or not God is hearing and answering our prayers. So it constrains and it fences in our minds and it frees us from anxiety. And I think most importantly, what it does is it focuses our hearts upon God's agendas. The natural tendency of our flesh is to make our prayer life very me-oriented. But when we pray along the framework of the Lord's Prayer, We first start by praying focused on God's agenda. And whenever we start focusing upon what's most important and putting first things first, it's amazing how that puts all of our concerns in their proper perspective. And it changes our hearts and it enlarges our hearts and enlarges our perspective on what God is doing in the kingdom. And it makes us more valuable to the kingdom because our heart becomes more of what God's heart is all about. Just a few of the important reasons why we should use the Lord's Prayer as a model and a framework for our prayer life. So there is a wrong way and there is a right way to pray. And I would suggest to you this morning that one of the most shocking and significant aspects of the Lord's Prayer is actually the opening invocation, the beginning of it. The phrase, our Father in heaven, it means that we can talk intimately and transparently to God, free from any fear of rejection. And that's, that's shocking. That's radical, especially when you see it through the eyes of the original audience. Opening with our Father, opening with Father. Understand something, in the Old Testament, God is only referred to as Father maybe a dozen, 15 times. And that's always in relationship normally to like the nation of Israel in a very general sense. Kind of like, you know, George Washington is the father of our country. I can say, sure, George Washington is my father, but is he really my father in a personal sense, in an intimate sense? No, just kind of in a tangential sense, he's my father as an American, and in the Old Testament, God was father, like the, like the father of Israel, or maybe in a metaphorical sense it was used, and like a father pities his children, so God pities us. But there was no personalized sense to it. Nothing like the way Jesus uses it. Jesus always used that, and, and it, it prayed in that manner, except on one occasion. On every prayer of Jesus in the Gospels, you find him personally using this my father concept with one exception on the cross. When our sins were placed upon him and he was severed and that relationship was broken and he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Except for that one occasion. Everywhere else, you see him praying like that Lazarus's tomb. Father, I thank you that you have heard me. Very intimately. 
And this led and bolstered the accusation that the Jews made against Jesus that he was a blasphemer because he presupposed an intimacy with God that they thought was inappropriate. It was irreverent. It was blasphemous to talk to God at that level of familiarity. Yet in the middle of that context, with that understanding from a cultural perspective, Jesus tells his Jewish followers who were raised with that mindset, who began their prayers in some way like God, the creator of universe, of all that is, is with some kind of titles and some type of honorific invocation. That's how they began their prayers. He turns to these men and women and he tells them, you begin with this very intimate interaction with God. Why does he do that? Why? See, in the Greek New Testament, we have the word here, pater, like patristic. But Jesus didn't speak Greek. He spoke Aramaic. And the word that he used was Abba. Abba. It's the Aramaic word for father. It's an important word, so important that there are times in the New Testament where it is literally brought in to the Greek language, and it's literally brought into the English. For example, one of those occasions is when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. One of those intimate conversations, so deep, so serious, so intimate, where Jesus is praying so intently that he is sweating like great drops of blood, and we read, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but you will. That's what I want to have done. You see, that word Abba, whether you are a child or you are a teenager or you are a young adult or even an older adult, that was the term that you used to express your love, your respect, the intimate relationship that you had with your dad. That's maybe the closest semblance that we might be in our English language would be maybe what the word dad communicates in our language. Abba, my dad, right? You know, now in other cultures, a father has the same connotation as dad. In other cultures, it may be papa, you know, but this is a very special word. It's a, it's a term of intimate relationship. It's important to understand it. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German pastor who would lose his life in opposition to Adolf Hitler, said that the whole miracle of divine grace is contained in this single word, Abba. Father. What's he getting at? Why would he say that? Because Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, say it with me, Abba, Father. He says again in Galatians chapter 4, verse 6, and because you are sons and daughters, ladies, you're not left out, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, say it with me, Abba, Father. You see, Jesus is getting at something here. 
He's telling us, start your prayer in this way. Why? Because it is your eternal birthright. You are in me, and I have the right as the Son of God to say, Abba, Father, and because you are joint heirs with me, and you have been adopted as sons and daughters into my family, you have the right to say, Abba, Father. Amen. And that's why Bonhoeffer will say the whole miracle of divine grace is contained in this single word. Listen, the gospel implications of this are huge. Don't miss them this morning. The first one is this. Those here this morning, if you do not follow Jesus Christ, you do not have the right to call God Abba, Father. Jesus, in speaking to those Jews who would yell, crucify him, who would call him a blasphemer for saying Abba, Father, he would talk to these religious men and women, and they would brag about their religious heritage, and they would say, we have God as our Father, we have Jehovah as our Father, we have Abraham as our Father, and he would say, oh, no, you don't. You are of your Father, the devil, and your will is to do your Father's desires. The Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2 that we are born dead in our trespasses and sins, and our loyalty, our allegiance is to our father, the devil. We are children, born children of disobedience. We can call God our father in a general sense, like we can call George Washington, if you're an American, the father, our father, but not in that special, intimate sense. If you're not in Jesus Christ, you don't have that right. But the good news is that can all change for you today. Today. I'd encourage you at the close of the service, go back to our care table, talk to one of our Stephen ministers. Give your life to Christ. Become one of his brothers and sisters and receive the gift of salvation and turn your life over to him. Repent of your sins and trust in him. And the gift of salvation means you have the right to say, Abba, Father. The implications are huge. An implication means that we come to God in prayer on the basis of our sonship, on the basis of our daughtership, not on the basis of our performance or on the basis of our perfection. This means that when you come in prayer, friends, you come just as you are. You come with all the victories and the celebrations and the joys and the wonderful things that have happened to you this day or this week, and you bring them to God in prayer, and you rejoice, and you thank Him. It also means that you come just as you are with all of your failures, with all of your sins, with all of your baggage, with all of your anger, with all of your doubt, with all of your fears, with all of your false selves. Come just as you are. You know, a couple of years ago, uh, when Randy Pope was here, I had begun to talk to him about my own life because I knew there was something wrong. I just didn't know what it was. And that would lead ultimately to 
me taking a sabbatical. And very early on in that sabbatical, um, I, I came to the realization that what I believed in my mind and I was proclaiming with my mouth, um, I doubted in my heart. There was a real disconnect going on. Bluntly, I doubted the goodness of God. And deep down in my heart, there was extreme anger, extreme hurt, and resentment. I didn't know that at the time. I just knew that there was something really, really wrong. And, but as this became, began to unfold in my heart, and I began to see it, I began to realize that what had been going on was this had been festering for years. And the Bible tells us that we have an enemy who's like a roaring lion. Let me tell you something. Satan is the accuser of the brethren, and he knows where we're struggling. And what does he do? And our point of struggle, he begins to accuse. And so you put on top of the anger and the doubt and the hurt, now pile on guilt over that anger and that doubt. And now pile on shame that I'm doubting and that I'm angry and then I'm irritated with God, and the downward spiral begins, and you fight it. But guess what? You don't win that by yourself. And it grew to a point where, folks, I wasn't having intimate, transparent conversations with God. I couldn't pray for myself. I would pray for you, and the, and the folly of my mind, I would spend time praying for you, thinking I was being effective. But if you can't pray for yourself, you can't pray for other people. That was just the deception of the enemy. And it was bad. I, I mean, I was, I was like Adam in the Garden of Eden. I was hiding from God. And I was projecting a false self, to God and offering up lame excuses, um, totally disconnected. It, it was to the point, honestly, uh, I, I really, I had written out my letter of resignation. I was on a walk away from the ministry. I, I knew that my time was up because this, I, I had forgotten something. I'd forgotten the most basic benefit of salvation. And that is that as a son, sons get to come and talk to their dad honestly and transparently simply because they're sons. Daughters get to come and talk to their dad just the way they are. They don't have to be false. They don't have to put forward a false self. Or they can even bring the false self to God and say, this is all a game that I'm playing, and I don't know how to get out of this mess. I'm in. Sons and daughters get to do that. And here's the third and most important implication of all of this. When sons and daughters come to God through Christ, we never have to be afraid of rejection by God. We can come just as we are, with all of that junk, and all of that baggage, and all of that sin, 
and all of that defeat, and all of that despair, and all of that sorrow, and discouragement, and bile. I I fell in love with that word bile, because that's the only way I could describe the condition of my heart, bile. But the great thing is, you can bring all of your bile to God, and He knows how to handle it. And when you're His son and His daughter, He doesn't reject you. And He gives us this beautiful story in the New Testament to help us trust that He doesn't reject. It's the story of the prodigal son. Remember that story? I'm not going to go into all the details of it, but the young man is so horrible to his dad and he rebels against his dad, and he sins against his dad, and he takes his inheritance, and he, and he goes and he lives such a sinful, horrible lifestyle until finally broken and worn out by sin, he, he limps his way back home, smelling like sin and bile. And the Bible tells us that when he is afar off in the distance, the father is standing on the porch watching for his son. You see, the prodigal son story isn't about the son. The prodigal son story is about the father. And it's teaching us an important lesson. And the lesson is this, that God the father looks for his children to come limping home. And what does that father do? He runs off the porch and he throws his arms around that limping son and he just loves him and he says, welcome home, let me clean you up, let's have a party. Everything that's happened is in the past. You're my son and I love you. And I don't know what you come into this church with this morning, but I want you to understand, Christian, don't forget, God decided before the foundations of the world to set his love upon you. God decided before this universe was created that Jesus was going to come to this earth and die specifically for every one of your sins, including your addictions and your despair and your anger and your doubts and anything that is plaguing you. He's already died for every one of them, and it was decreed that Jesus would die for them before he created the universe. And at the appointed time, this God sent the Spirit into your life and my life to bring us back to life and gave us the gifts of repentance and faith so that we could trust in our only hope, Jesus Christ, through whom we have the right to say, Abba, Father. And this God, when we struggle, and we stray and we fall. He's that loving father who runs to his children when they come limping home. This is our God, our Father. And so, dear Christian, this morning, come out of hiding. Bring your false self, bring your junk, bring your anger, bring your sin, bring your defeats, bring your doubts, bring your joys and your celebrations, bring it all to your heavenly Father. Come to Him 
just as you are and talk to him. Heavenly Father, thank you that we can call you Father. Thank you that through Jesus Christ, we have the, the right, the ability, the freedom to talk to you in this way. That we are beloved sons and daughters, that we're not an, your enemy. And Lord, we come to you this morning in many different states. Some here this morning having a time of victory and joy and others at the very opposite end of the spectrum. Lord, give us the grace that we need to come to you, Father, transparently, honestly, authentically, not like the hypocrite, not like the Gentile, but as a son and daughter having a conversation with the Father who loves them. Thank you for your love as shown to us in Christ Jesus. In his name I pray, amen.